Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And we have a wonderful guest on today. We have the amazing Elder Igloo with us. How are you, Elder Igloo? Doing great. Really uh, excited to be here. Oh, we are very excited to have you. And your background is just mesmerizing. Like, I don't even think I can focus on your presentation because it looks so intriguing and interesting. So, yeah, you look good. I like it I a did, lot. I don't actually have bookshelves like most most uh, podcasters, so this will have to do for now. You know what? It's beyond what most podcasters have, so I think it's great. No, I should tell our viewers and our listeners that Elder Igloo, uh, we have known him for a little while now, and it was kind of interesting. I always start out by saying it's kind of interesting how we run into this person, but again, this is a very interesting story. So I was on Reddit, like I tend to be quite a bit, on a post-Mormon site, and I saw just an anonymous poster that had this amazing slideshow, you know, and I started kind of looking through, you know, what he had, and I was thinking, I've never really seen this treatment of the book of Abraham, because that's what we're going to be talking about tonight, in such a clear, um, user-friendly, presented in such a clear and user-friendly way. So I instantly got a hold of Landon. I said, Landon, you got to check this out. And at this point, we did not have our Mormonish podcast. We had our The Good Book Club, and we would have bonus events um, for our readers across the country, where we'd have like a virtual uh, meeting some night about some interesting topics. So Elder Igloo came on and presented this to our book club and everybody was rave reviews it was just incredible we talked about it for for months it was so good and so now with mormonish it's been on our to-do list to check off we got to get elder igloo back and we got to have this presentation and i understand that you've made a few tweaks to it elder igloo since we saw it last time maybe a few little updates or things or yeah always a yeah just topic. little tweaks and uh, <laughs> improvements small corrections that sort of thing yeah no that is great so we are more than thrilled, aren't we, Landon, uh, to bring this to everybody tonight? Absolutely. Yeah, we are excited for uh, Elder Igloo on here. Uh, I think Book of Abraham is big on probably number one on breaking people's shelves. I think that's, yeah. you know, obviously one of the easiest uh, items to debunk. Uh, but Elder Igloo has gone into such depth to understand it. Uh, that some of the essays that they write and that kind of stuff uh, that you, when, when you go through them once if you read the essay and then you see this information elder igloo's presenting you can see that what they're saying isn't quite accurate because uh he'll show you some of the reasons why you know that when they're saying oh it's maybe this type of translation or this type of translation or he's trying to do it this way that's simply not the case, and, and Elder Igloo will, uh, will go into this. I think it'll tie in nicely to part four of John Lundwall, uh, because uh, we just learned about what Reformed Egyptian characters are and how uh, how the magic worldview of Joseph Smith might apply to that. It also, I think, applies to the Book of Abraham. Uh, so when we get yeah. going through here, I think, I think we'll see some of that. So I'll start out reading his uh, bio. Uh, so everybody sure. knows who he is. Um, Elder Igloo grew up uh, in a faithful LDS home, received his Eagle Scout at 14, and served a mission in Mozambique. So that's pretty unique. <laughs> Mozambique is unique. Is that the mission? <laughs> After, I've never heard that one before. Never heard that one? <laughs> First time on Mormonish. <laughs> After his mission, he completed his bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, got married in the temple, started his career and became a faithful tithe paying Latter-day Saint. After stumbling across some post-Mormon content on YouTube, those darn post-Mormons, 
He and his family began their great awakening, which ultimately led them out of the church. They now happily enjoy Second Saturdays, ice mochas, and let go of guilt and shame. The Book of Abraham translation presentation started as part of a personal deconstruction journey, but evolved into an effort to make this deep and fascinating topic digestible by the average person. Elder Iglu does not claim to be a historian or Egyptologist, but hopes to do the scholarship of many great scholars justice by helping as many people as possible to get the full story the Book of Abraham documents have to tell. So, and he does a great job about that. Uh, sometimes you can listen to the um, historians and the people with the PhDs and they give you stuff, but you don't understand it. Um, and so Elder Igloo's broken it down into a more easily understood uh, sections and pieces uh, to, to make it so the average person can understand it. Exactly, which we all count ourselves as average people. And like Landon said, um, the apologist essays that he was discussing, there are a lot of things that address the Book of Abraham because it is a major shelf-breaking item. And, and once you see this presentation, when you do look at those essays, you will be able to say, oh, no, I see how you're spinning it here. So that's why this is such a valuable presentation. So enough about us raving about the presentation. Let's just do the presentation. <laughs> let's have Elder Igloo share a screen and let's get started. All right, here we go. Okay, and I just had some notes here, some things to touch on before I started. Um, so yeah, I'm not a historian, obviously, I'm not an Egyptologist. I design power supplies for a living. So this is kind of out of my you know, expertise, but um, I just saw such an amazing story here and such amazing like documents and evidence. Um, and really what got me into it was Dan Vogel's uh, video series. Um, so that's my primary frame of reference is, is Dan Vogel's scholarship, which uh, you know, is top notch stuff. So, um, but what I am good at is making, is doing PowerPoint engineering. So that's what I hope to uh, bring to the table here. Um, and let's see. Um, so obviously any mistakes are my own. I welcome any corrections if I have anything wrong or there's more context to something. Would love to know about that. Um, and I guess just one other thing is I did share, um, maybe a year and a half ago now, I did share these slides with BYP. Um, shout out to him. And, though, and then some of that content got used in a Mormon story. So if you see some things that look familiar, um, it's all good. It was yeah, with permission and all one, one big happy yeah, that, there. So. That was a funny moment because Landon and I co-host with him on a series where we go through the gospel topic essays with him. And we were talking about the uh, book of Abraham, how we will get to that essay. We're going in order. And he was going through some of his content and we were like, that slide looks familiar. He goes, oh, I got those from Elder Igloo. We're like, you know Elder Igloo too? So yeah, it is one big happy family. We were really excited that your your content is, you know, kind of making the rounds because it's so important. Yep. Okay. All right, let's get started. So Book of Abraham translation. So um, for those that may not be familiar, if any, the Book of Abraham um, was claimed to be translated from some ancient Egyptian papyri that um, Joseph Smith arranged for the purchase of in 1835 in Kirtland, Ohio. And so 
we're going to skip over some details, but basically that original papyri was thought that was sold to a museum and then people thought that it burned in the museum. So um, fast forward to 1967, it turns up, or at least a good portion of it. Um, and so it was sold or donated back to the church. <laughs> There's some controversy there, but the church got it back. Um, and so it offers us a really unique view as we can see the source material that produced scripture, right? In Joseph's world. So um, will this, you know, allow us to get a peek into that and potentially validate or maybe disprove claims of, you know, design, divine inspiration of scripture. Um, so, um, and also just kind of set the stage um, of, of how this is framed with respect to the Book of Mormon. Um, if you look at their subtitles or introduction, basically, it's, it's pretty clearly, you know, it's a translation by Joseph Smith of some artifact, papyrus in the case of the Book of Abraham or plates in the case of Book of Mormon. Um, it's the writings of some ancient prophet um, that they wrote on this medium. Um, and yeah, it's a translation. It's, it's just a basic, you know, I'm translating from one language to another. People want to know what the roles say. So they're being translated into another language. It's like no funny business. And we'll see some quotes of kind of how people people saw that. This is that's kind of an interesting slide because, you know, we always say, "Gal, if we had the plates, you know, uh, and we could translate them, then we'd know for sure whether he was accurate or not." But we do have the papyri from which he translated it from, and we know what it says, and we know that it doesn't say what it says. But it's it's an interesting comparison, then, uh, you know, because it's like, oh, well, we don't have the plates, we can't know, we can only know. But we do know on the book of Abraham, that one's a little harder to say, you know, that. So I, I thought that was an interesting point. Yeah, yeah. And just as a side note, I guess, um, you know, the, the rationale for why the plates couldn't be seen just by natural means is that then it wouldn't require faith, right? But we have this case with the book of Abraham, and it doesn't match, spoiler alert, I guess, but, but even then, um, people still find ways of possibilities to still believe it. And so I just don't see it as a good argument that if the plates were actually real, um, that it, you wouldn't still require faith to believe it was scripture, right? So now, now it requires faith to believe it's scripture despite the evidence <laughs> with Abraham. That's the difference, I think. So. Right. <laughs> Okay, so just a, just some still some overview material here. Um, so artifacts purchased in July 1835. Um, really, the, the first chunk of translation work was done between July and November of that year. And then there was this big gap. Um, you know, towards the end of November, December, Joseph got sick and others, you know, there was always crazy stuff going on. So he got totally pulled away from that until things kind of settled down relatively speaking, in Nauvoo. Um, and so he began publishing what he translated in 1835, but then also finished up a few more chapters and published those in the Times and Seasons. Um, 
And then it was all first published as one pamphlet called The Pearl of Great Price in 1851. Um, and then those, those artifacts that he, so some mummies, some papyrus, those uh, were stayed with the Smith. So um, uh, Lucy Mack Smith and Emma, they kept those. They eventually sold them in 1856 to, now I can't remember the museum, but they sold them to a museum. I, I believe it was museum. the Chicago Museum, but that, that that's really interesting that you would sell the papyra that was written by the hand of Abraham that yeah. you would sell that artifact that just uh blows your mind and then again they make kind of the argument that he didn't try to sell the copyright of the book of mormon in canada but <laughs> he's clearly selling artifacts here it seems like so that, yeah that's interesting if i'm not mistaken it was they were sold once lucy died so i think she had she was often the person showing them to visitors. I think she had a very strong like connection with those artifacts, but yeah, when she died, I guess it was kind of part of the estate sale. Um, so um, it wasn't until 1880 that it was actually canon, fully made canon. Um, and then fast forward all the way to 1967, that's when the artifacts were returned. I love this picture here of kind of the press conference of them showing the nuts facsimile one that he's holding there. Um, and so obviously there's been, there's been apologetics and, you know, critique, criticism all the way through this whole thing, but obviously it pick, pick, picked up when those artifacts were returned and they didn't quite match. Um, but it wasn't until 2013 when there was kind of more an official response to this and the translation, the historicity and tra uh, translation and historicity of the Book of Abraham essay from the church. Um, and then one other noteworthy development that I guess is worth pointing out here is the Joseph Smith papers when they published the facsimile edition that covers all of these documents. Um, there's an introduction that really kind of takes one side of the apologetics, which we'll get into later. Um, so, yep. It, it's interesting if, if the artifact was returned in 1967, I think it was at the Metropolitan Museum of New York is where they found it. Uh, I was teaching seminary in the 90s and we were still teaching that it had burned up in the fire, Chicago fire. And I'm going, how, how come this never got updated in 30 years when I found this out? You know, it's like they didn't want us to know that. But clearly the Metropolitan Museum did not think this was a... Uh, something that was written by the hand of Abraham, because that would have been one of the most... Uh, it would yeah. be the most important discovery in the entire history of the world because of all the religions that consider it, you know, that the, some of the founding scriptures. So it literally would be the most important discovery, I think. Yeah, and, and as a believer, I don't think I ever really... I never fully registered in my mind that this yeah. was like a real... Like the papyrus was real or... That there was even a translation from Papyrus. It was just, here's some scriptures, read them. <laughs> right. Yeah, this is where they came from. Yep. <laughs> read them. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you don't need to know anything about where they come from or anything. Just, yeah, believe it. So, um, all right. So, what did they actually buy? Um, so, Michael H. Chandler was the guy who was uh, 
basically toting these around the country, trying to make money off of them, eventually sell them. Um, and so this was like the, the last of his lot that he had left. And so he, really what, what the, what the Joseph and, uh, you know, members cared about was the papyrus, but he made them also buy the, the mummies. <laughs> so they bought the four mummies that he had left. Um, and one of, so the male mummy had a scroll in his arm or in his hand, um, that Joseph eventually identified as the book of Abraham. There was another scroll that he came to identify as the book of Joseph. Um, there was some other fragments, at least one that we know of was this, uh, what became known as facsimile two. Um, we actually don't have the original of that one, but we do have a, a drawing uh, in the Kirtland Egyptian papers. And there was probably some other scraps and fragments, you know, this stuff was deteriorating. Um, but based on uh, Egyptian, Kirtland era Egyptian papers, we're pretty sure we have the majority of it, or at least the, the, the uh, items of interest. All right, so here are some Joseph Smith history entries in regards to these artifacts. Um, and we'll actually have the man himself here walk us through uh, what was going on then. <laughs> Michael H. Chandler came to Kirtland to exhibit some Egyptian mummies together with some two or more rolls of papyrus covered with hieroglyphic figures and devices. He brought me some of the characters and I gave the interpretation. Soon after this, some of the saints at Kirtland purchased the mummies and papyrus, a description of which will appear hereafter and I with William W. Phelps and Oliver Cowdery as scribes commenced the translation of some of the characters and much to our joy found that one of the rolls contained the writings of Abraham, another the writings of Joseph of Egypt. July 1835, the remainder of this month I was continually engaged in translating an alphabet to the book of Abraham and arranging a grammar of the Egyptian language as practiced by the ancients. <laughs> All right, so... Um, creepy. I have to say creepy. <laughs> really well done, but creepy. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, going through this kind of makes me see why historians um, do what they do. Because after like read, actually looking at people's handwriting from 150, you know, however many years ago and trying to un get in their mindset and understand what was going on back then, it's like, man, I just wish that I could go back in time and talk to these people, right? And actually see firsthand what was going on. But all we have is whatever's left. So um, a little modern technology will <laughs> get some, some digital necromancy here. Um, but yeah, so these were, um, this was the official history of the church um, and Obviously, you know, Joseph didn't write all of this. He had scribes doing it. Um, most of this was probably done by uh, Willard Richards. And, um, you know, he was approving this. Um, and also the people who helped him translate would have been helping with this. So, uh, you know, the apologists like to say, well, they, would, they don't want to attribute the alphabets and, and uh, the grammar to Joseph. Um, but you really have to kind of stretch reason to get there, as we'll see. 
Michael H. Going again. There we go. Okay, so some other um, contemporary stuff we have is Joe Smith's journal entries. And so I'll just read through some of these really quickly. So this is right around the time um, that the first chunk of translation is going on. So 1st of October, 1835, this afternoon, labored on the Egyptian alphabet in company with Oliver Cowdery and William W. Phelps. The system of astronomy was unfolded. And that will become important later. Um, and the rest of these are pretty brief, just, you know, commenced, uh, recommenced translating the ancient records, returned home, spent the day in translating. Um, so these dates are kind of key for trying to figure out the chronology um, of what happened. So we, um, you know, based on Dan Vogel's analysis, the majority of the actual Book of Abraham translation happened in November, um, as, as we'll get to that. And then a lot of the grammar and alphabets and that kind of stuff was happening early on, like in July, October, uh, or July, August kind of time frame. Okay, so sorry for the wall of text, but um, I th really think it's valuable to read through these. These are journal entries, uh, interviews, uh, talks of people who would have had firsthand knowledge around this time uh, that things were being translated. Um, so maybe we could just take, uh, you know, uh, I'll read one and we can cycle through. Uh, and the things that I think are important are, are underlined here. So I'll, I'll start with Albert Brown, who's writing to his brother. Uh, so this is November 1835, so right in the thick of the first trans, uh, translation. Uh, let me move this here. Okay. So many of the learned have been to Kirtland to examine the characters, but none of them have been able to tell but very little about them. And yet Joseph, without any of the wisdom of this world, can read them and know what they are. Thus we see the wisdom of the world is in comparison to the wisdom of God. I love that one. <laughs> wow. Uh, he, and so it says he's, he can read them. He, he's not doing this through his seer stone. Uh, he's literally reading them like a translator would. Well, maybe he's reading them through the seer's tongue. We don't don't really know exactly. We told that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This one's from Warren Parish. It's letter to the editor of the Painesville Republican, February fifth, eighteen thirty-eight. I have sat by his side and penned down the translation of the Egyptian hieroglyphics, as he claimed to receive it by direct inspiration of heaven. Okay. So here he's saying it's by inspiration. Um. Okay. And yeah. So. I'm, I'm guessing, Rebecca, you can't read that small writing. You know what? I think I can read it. It's okay. just off small. I'm going to try. Maybe I'll be, <laughs> we always have this joke, Elder Igloo, that things are too small. And I'm always like, so. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm great. Yeah. This is I'm good. fully aware. I watch all of your <laughs> Oh, okay. So you know our running gag. And people are I like, know. why don't you just wear those on your head? And yes, not yeah. going to happen. Okay. This oh, is sorry, Wilfred one, Woodruff. Oh, go ahead. One comment on that last one. Um, I have heard. I don't know if it's just fallen out of favor or or what, but I have heard a kind of a, an apologetic is, oh, these were just, um, they were just attempting a um, more academic translation. 
And so the fact that it doesn't match doesn't mean that the inspiration was wrong, right? They were just playing around with language. That, that's the catalyst theory, right? That that. Well, it's a little that, different than that. Or the catalyst theory says that they were playing around with it, but then they then they got the revelation, or then Joseph got the true revelation that produced the text. This is this apologetic is more saying that it was actually never a claim that it was inspired, right? It was just they were just Joseph was just interested in languages and was just playing around with it. So like in that view or something. Right. And that view, you know, if it being scripture isn't a really, I guess, a strong uh, position. Huh. That's kind of convenient. You can say, <laughs> no, this isn't scripture. We were just practicing, playing, you know, playing yeah, around. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, okay. I don't think there's, I, yeah, I don't think that's a maintainable position based on what people are saying being claimed. Right. It's so. convenient, though, if you want to get, you know, get have something kind of go down the memory hole. Okay, Wilfred Woodruff, um, Journal 19, February 1842. The Lord is blessing Joseph with power to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom of God to translate through the Urim and Thummim, ancient records and hieroglyphics as old as Abraham or Adam. Oh, Adam, my goodness. Uh, Joseph uh, the seer has presented us some of the book of Abraham, which was written by his own hand, but hid from the knowledge of man for the last 4,000 years, but has now come to light through the mercy of God. Interesting. So he did yeah, so, translate through the Urim and Thummim according to this person. Right. Yeah, according Woodruff. to this person. Or at least so Wilder, Wilfred Woodruff was convinced um, that that's the way he was doing it. Um, and he was also convinced that these documents or these papyri were written by Abraham. It's, by his own hand, it was not just a title, at least to him. <laughs> and um, that they were 4,000 years old. So and and we should Where did you get these we, ideas from right we, we probably should say that uh, exactly. the urim and thummim at this point could have been nothing but the seer stone right because he's already returned the everything everything back. back to the angel moroni prior to this right right i think um he would have given the brown seer stone i guess it was to oliver at this point so but he still has white seer stone that there's some other uh, contemporaneous accounts of him using the white seer stone uh, for the rest of his life, basically. Uh, so, but yeah, Urim and Thummim, I think to them, everyone was just using that as some magic rock of one form or another. <laughs> All right, so uh, next one was Joseph Smith himself. Um, this was supposed to be uh, printed in the times and seasons, but it never actually made it to print. Um, but he said, uh, in the present number or edition, uh, will be found the commencement of the records discovered in Egypt, sometime since, as penned by the hand of Father Abraham, which I shall continue to translate and publish as fast as possible till the whole is completed. So this is, yeah, just before, um, those things started getting printed for the first time. But yeah, pinned by the, the hand of Father Abraham. I don't know how much wiggle room is there, but I'm sure people- Pretty clear. <laughs> <laughs> and again, this would be the most important discovery in the history of the world. So. Right, right. Um, okay, uh, this one's Orson Pratt, Journal of Discourses, Volume 20, Discourse 9, 1878. Mr. Chandler had also obtained from learned men the best translation he could 
of some few characters, which, however, was not a translation, but more in the shape of their ideas with regard to it, their acquaintance with the language not being sufficient to enable them to translate it literally. After some conversation with the prophet Joseph, Mr. Chandler presented to him the ancient characters, asking him if he could translate them. The prophet took them and repaired to his room and inquired of the Lord concerning them. The Lord told him they were sacred records containing the inspired writings of Abraham when he was in Egypt and also those of Joseph while he was in Egypt. So Mr. Chandler is the person he bought bought the scrolls from. Right, right. Yeah, so this is Orson Pratt's recollection of how that all went down. And when I read this one, I had to rub my eyes because he's basically describing the catalyst theory as being the inferior thing that the learned people, that's all they could do is um, they couldn't translate it literally like everyone thinks of, like, what does it say? Um, but they could just give their shape, the shape of their ideas with regard to it. It's and like, this is because the Rosetta Stone, although it's been found at this time, nobody, there, there's probably only a handful of people in the world who, uh, who could translate actual Egyptian at this time or had in 1835. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Obviously when he was giving this in 1878, it had been, but by that, by then the papyrus was lost. So, um, yeah, the other, well, this, this was in the journal of discourses, 1878, but Orson Pratt would have seen this. He was around. He's describing right. what had been in the 1835 time period. Right. Right. Yeah, the other thing that he recollects, which is interesting, is um, he's saying that the Lord told him they were sacred records. So the Lord is saying that what you have is sacred records, not that, well, you're going to play around with it, but then you're going to get inspiration, right? Um, yeah, so. if it was a catalyst theory, they would not be sacred records. They would just be pieces of papyra that you're translate that you're using as the catalyst, but the words are sacred but the 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 document itself would not be because obviously it's just a standard something else not not sacred right. records but he believes it's penned by abraham and sacred records uh, right that, that's what this is telling us here that's what orson pratt believed where he got those ideas you know <laughs> seems fairly we obvious but... <laughs> we can only imagine that's right we can only imagine right are we ready to move on to uh, Josiah Quincy? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Josiah Quincy in the figures of the past from the leaves of old journals, third edition, Boston, 1883, pages 376 through 400. Uh, and now, and now come with me, said the prophet, and I will show you the curiosities, some parchments inscribed with hieroglyphics, which were then offered to us. They were preserved under glass and handled with great respect. That is the handwriting of Abraham, the father of the faithful, said the prophet. We were further assured that the prophet was the only mortal who could translate these mysterious writings and that his power was given by direct inspiration. Yeah. Wow. So these are the handwriting of Abraham. Mm -hmm. You're looking at what he wrote is what he's saying. You're looking right. at his handwriting. His handwriting, the signature. I think there's another, I couldn't find it. There's another quote about, hey, that's the sig signature um, of, what was, of Joseph or somebody. Um, 
but yeah, so Josiah Quincy is really interesting. He, um, he does get some things like not quite right, like some very specific details, um, but he does get other stuff correct. Uh, like they were uh, under the glass, handled with great respect, you know, the number of mummies and so forth. So, um, yeah, but, so, but I think that this... Uh I like that last sentence. We were further assured that the prophet was the only mortal who could translate these mysterious writings. And and who were they assured that by? The the only mortal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And and I don't think, I'm not sure if that's true at this point, because I think the Rosetta Stone is, has been deciphered by this point. It's, you know, probably only people in, a couple people in France or England or that area would be able to, to make a translation, but I think some other mortals could translate these writings if they had access to them in 18, you know, of course they're across the yeah. ocean. So probably, yeah. But that information wasn't well disseminated. Correct. Yeah. He wouldn't have known um, that probably at that time. Right, right. Okay. Uh anything else before I move on to this one? I I really enjoyed looking these up. This wasn't in, in when, when we did it book club. Yeah, now these are very interesting because it tells yeah. you the school of thought back then with all of the followers. I mean, they all really believed this was it. And Joseph was this incredibly special person that could do this. And God was telling him to do it. I mean, I think it only adds to his power and influence, right? You can see why people were so impressed with him and everything he could do. Right. All right. So let's dive into the actual documents. So first, we'll just look at just a quick overview of what they are and what they look like, and then we'll start going through them. So um, overall, um, what survives from that July to November timeframe um, is some notebooks co- that are have come to be known as the valuable discovery notebooks, just because of what, what it, what's uh, put on the, the front cover of them. But these are basically just several pages of copied characters, um, presumably to maybe uh, preserve them because they were falling apart. Um, and then there is actually a translation in the Valuable Discovery Notebook that we believe is probably the first, one of the first things to be translated. Um, then there's the alphabets. So there's three sets of uh, alphabets that are basically the same. One was written by mostly Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery was the other one, and then the third was done by W.W. W. Phelps. Uh, so it appears they were like all doing them cl- about the same time, maybe just have extra copies because uh, there was no photoco- photocopiers, right? Um, then we have the um, Egyptian alphabet and grammar notebook. This is We'll just refer to this as the Gale, the Grammar and Alphabet of the Egyptian Language. Um, and so this is an actual like bound notebook that had, looks like it had some thought put into it beforehand of how we should organize this and leave space for expansion. And it's basically, okay, we've run out of room with the alphabets and we probably want to organize this differently. Let's move our work over into this other book. Uh, and then the final one is the Book of Abraham Manuscripts. And this has, again, there's three copies of this one, uh, but they're not all done at the same time. Uh, two are, but then 
Uh, so these are actually the text of the book, what ultimately becomes the book of Abraham, along with the characters in the margins. So just some graphical images of the valuable discovery notebook, just a couple of the pages. So this is what most of the pages kind of look like, just some Egyptian characters copied down. Some of the pictures are drawn as well. Um, and so that's pretty much what that one looks like. The Egyptian alphabets are, um, it's more of like, uh, more of like a dictionary, I guess, where you have characters in the far left column and then the sound that it would make and then a translation or description of what it means. Um, so and you can see the, the column headers here, right? Egyptian, um, I actually can't read that, but this would be the sound. So like this one would be, that character makes the sound, ah, and then the first being who, and so on. Um, so that's how these are laid out. The, the, and this the is, first being who what? The first being who, I can I honestly cannot read their handwriting. It, I rely on the transcriptions. Exercises. <laughs> that's interesting because you know we 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 just kind of went over alphabets with uh, Dr. Lundwall on his episode, and you know alphabets make sounds like you're saying, but they the sound ah does not have a meaning. It it's a sound. Exactly. It doesn't have a meaning until you combine it's it with several other sounds. Syllabic. Yeah. Right. Right. Or I think it says the first being who exercises supreme power. That's it. I was going to say yeah. examines cool. or exercises. Yeah. You know, I feel that the common member has no idea that these other books exist. exist the grammar, yeah. the alphabet. I don't think they do. I think everybody just thinks it was a scroll. And that. I think they have no knowledge, most people, of this. That's why this is yeah. so fascinating to me that this does exist. The church has these. There are pictures. They could easily let everyone know, you know, that these exist. But I don't feel that they do. It's absolutely yeah. interesting yeah i mean shout out to the joseph smith's papers project because mm -hmm. the quality of the images that they have available is awesome you can zoom way in and that's where all this comes from so yeah. i hope we, we can make these slides available because i do have links to all this stuff that you can go look at yourself um, oh, that's, really great. Cool. that's um, great so that's what the alphabets look like this one is uh in joseph smith's handwriting so that's what his handwriting looks like. The hand of Joseph. <laughs> the hand of Joseph, yeah. Okay, so then the Gale, um, the Grammar and Alphabet book. So this one, um, it's further broken out into different parts and degrees, which we'll explain that in a minute. Um, but it also has these lectures of, okay, here's how all this meaning is encoded into one character, right? So you can, it explains how one character can be dissected into its different simple parts. And then each part of, each of those is like a one part of speech. Uh, and we'll, we'll read this description later. So that's kind of what's in there. And then there's also the other major element to what the grammar, I guess they're calling is, that you can increase or decrease 
the amount of content or the meaning of a character by drawing lines above or below it. And so like if you draw multiple lines, it like multiplies it to this huge meaning. And so um, as we'll see, that's how I think the thought process was of how you get so much English text for one character. Boy, this is this is hand in glove, isn't it, Landon? Uh -huh. What we talked to Dr. Lundwell about, and part of his thesis was that this is more of a magical worldview, um, one character just exploding into all this meaning. That's how it works in the world of magic, or increasing or decreasing. And boy, this this just goes hand in glove with what he was talking about. This is incredible. All right, and then we get to the actual Book of Abraham manuscripts that were produced in 1835. Um, so these, there's three separate manuscripts uh, and Joe Smith papers labels them as A, B, and C. And so that's kind of how we'll, we'll refer to them. Um, and in the left margin, it, it says character, and then you have different Egyptian characters over there. And then at least, in uh, manuscript C, it says translation of the book of Abraham by his own hand, etc. So it has that title uh, introduction there at the top. So people like to, you know, say that, oh, uh, the, the characters were simply used for decoration or like bullet points. Uh, they don't, that's not actually, you know, inferring translation here. But um, I think most people, it's pretty obvious what there can be no doubt what the, whoever wrote this, you know, or this was Frederick Roy or W.W. Phillips handwriting is the darker uh, here. And then Warren Parrish is later, but you know, it's pretty obvious what the intent is. The, there. the, the question here is he's got a seer stone. He didn't have to develop an alphabet to translate the book of Mormon. And at this point you can't say, well, he was learning how to translate because he's, already supposedly translated the whole Book of Mormon and can do it with a seer stone and a hat without even looking at the plates. So why not use a seer stone in the hat and not develop an alphabet in the first place at all? Why are you trying to develop an alphabet? And if you're only receiving it through inspiration and you're not actually trying to do a direct translation, why would you need to develop an alphabet or understand the alphabet unless you're trying to do a direct translation? Right. And, you know, another thing that Dan Vogel points out is when he, it's kind of following a similar pattern to the Book of Mormon in that initially he's writing down some characters and showing them to Martin Harris. Uh, basic Martin Harris is needing, so he wants something. Yeah, give me something that this is real, right? So he gets some characters and it ultimately convinces Martin Harris or keeps him going at least for them. Um, and so, you know, fast forward five years, there's a whole lot of different people in the church. They don't have that upper upstate New York magical worldview context. So he's got to kind of play this game again of uh, basically gaining the confidence of, you know, his whoever's around him. So, that's, in, that's in this case, he's got a physical document he can show them so they can see it, but they want to understand how is it that you're translating this. So he's trying to demonstrate that he can translate it and the thought process yeah. of translating it. As I, I, 
hesitate to say this, but as any good con man would, <laughs> you're trying to get him to buy into it. You know, you got to yeah. buy into the story. Uh, and so he's going to try to make you think this is how he's doing it. Right. Yeah. I, if only we could really get inside someone's head, but all we can, we can make assessments on, on the data, but yeah, it's fun to speculate what someone might be thinking. Um, so that's some, some different ways to look at it, I guess. All right. Whoops. So, you know, that's a lot of stuff, right? So how can we kind of visualize how some of these pieces might fit together? And so how I, how I think about it, and this is supported by the evidence, but, you know, in the finer details, there's, you know, room for a disagreement among scholars, but um, this is, I think this is a really useful way to think about it. So I think the value, the valuable discovery really comes first. Maybe verses one through three were first as like, okay, here's a, I translated verses one through three, and that's how I know it was the scroll of Abraham. Um, but so not a real big deal, which one comes first exactly. I think the valuable discovery comes first. Um, and then I think it's pretty clear that the work moves into the alphabets and then from there into the Gale. Um, and then later on in like November, that's when we really start getting the text of the book of Abraham going into those manuscripts. And so each of those blue arrows along the way is Joseph Smith's input. You know, that's, he's the, he's the prophet, right? He's the guy that knows what's going on. So um, that's where any of this translation content, anything that the average person wouldn't would just be making up, right? Why would they be making it up when they have Joseph to provide it? So that's his inputs. Um, and there's some things copied over and then kind of the dotted lines here are pretty important because it shows how some of this material, the ideas that were developed, the concepts kind of make get transferred over. There's some actually direct usage of some of the characters, but then it quickly kind of becomes more amorphous and just a stream of consciousness kind of thing uh, into the, as you get further into the verses. So, but a lot of the ideas that were developed uh, early on seem to be used in there. Okay. So let's look at the translation that was done in the, or let's look at where the characters in the Valuable Discovery Notebook actually come from, because that's kind of interesting. So most of the characters that were written into this book um, are believed to be co coming from a scroll that's lost, which would have been the Book of the Dead for Amenhotep. Um, and that, that information is provided by Robert Rittner at his reading of it. Um, and then a lot of these drawings come from the, what would have been identified as the Book of Joseph, which is a scroll, Book of the Dead for um, Semenis, I think you say it. Um, and then I have this, this is Josiah Quincy again, because um, I really love this snake with the walking snake picture. <laughs> Um, so it reminds me of a Christmas story, kind of that lamp with the legs. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
That's funny. Uh, maybe this is Italian. Oh, who knows? That's Uh, right. Oh, Julie. <laughs> um, so um, this is in his, in Josiah Quincy's journal. Um, and it starts with a quote from Joseph Smith here saying, uh, here we have the earliest account of, of the creation from which Moses composed the first book of Genesis. The parchment last referred to showed a rude drawing of a man and a woman and a serpent walking upon a pair of legs. I venture to doubt the propriety, propriety of providing the reptile in question with this unusual means of locomotion. Why, that's plain as a pike staff, was the rejoinder. Before the fall, snakes always went about on legs, just like chickens. They were deprived of them in punishment for their agency in the ruin of man. So, so apparently that is uh, Joseph's interpretation of these pictures. Um, but it just gives you a glimpse into um, kind of his mindset. I think he really saw a lot in these pictures. And I think he was really, really drawn to... Um, facsimile one right because that's probably out of all of the papyrus that's the most like interesting picture but in this book of the dead here you see like birds people with staffs and you know so with an, a little imagination you could easily see how someone could see their creation in this right the uh the genesis story basically so And I don't believe there are any snakes with legs in the fossil record. I could be wrong on that. <laughs> Not uh, but... yet. They just haven't been discovered yet. That's <laughs> all. <laughs> yeah. They're... Well, that's the funny thing is there probably is like, you know, amphibians that have legs that eventually have shriveled up. Um, Yep. so don't give the apologists any ideas Yeah. there. Yeah. Well, they, That's they don't look right. like people legs. That's for sure. Yeah. They'll, and they'll say, Well, they, no, not, nothing died until the fall. That's why we don't have any record of snakes with legs. Uh, but Yeah. then you got to go back to 6,000 years ago was the fall, and snakes have clearly been without legs prior to that time. So, yeah, There you go. Right, right. fun, <laughs> fun well, little. either way, it's a very provocative picture. And It I can is. see, you know, Joseph and his just completely fertile imagination. I mean, nobody argues that, that, you know, he would look at this and just take it where he needed it to go very easily. So I can, I can completely see that. Yeah, he's likening the papyri unto himself. <laughs> Mm -hmm. yeah, that's it. There it is. uh, that's, what, that's why I think uh, Joseph is Nephi, right? That's I see a lot of Yeah. that in Nephi. Um, Yeah. okay, so this is the translation that's actually in the Valuable Discovery Notebook. And so um, they're on separate pages, but you can see... Um, these characters that are kind of inserted in line with the text come from you know, that previous page we were looking at. Um, one of them gets flipped over. And then um, there seemed to be some kind of confusion about this character. You know, it's, see, it's, it's drawn a couple different ways. And even in the alphabet, they're kind of waffling on how they, it should be drawn. So this, maybe this character was damaged in the original one and it couldn't really make it out entirely. But um, this actually helps kind of provide the order. So this is Joseph's um, alphabet here.
it, which has the most like uncertainty to it. But then in Oliver's and Williams uh, uh, alphabets, it's they draw it the same way, like without any question. So, but anyhow, um, this appears to be trying to explain who these mummies are and why would they have the writings of prophets, right? So it says, Ketuman, princess, daughter of Onidas, king of Egypt, who began to reign in the year of the world, 2962. Ketuman was born in the 30th year of the reign of her father and died when she was 28 years old, which was the year 3020. So, um, and then we also have this quote from William Appleby saying the, the male mummy was one of, this is his description after he visited um, Nauvoo. Um, the male mummy was one of the ancient pharaohs of Egypt and a priest, as he is embalmed with his tongue extended, represents a speaker. The females were his wife and two daughters. They, as a part of the uh, as a part of the writings have been translated and informs us who they are. Um, so basically the idea was that they were royalty. And so they would have been basically holding on to these important writings and were buried with them ultimately. So I think that was Joseph's way of kind of <laughs> trying to describe why they would have the, the, the uh, prophets writing. Why is everything they discover somebody really, really important, right? Every mummy is a pharaoh. Every female mummy is a princess. Every time you're reincarnated, you're Cleopatra. What happened to the common mummy, the common person? Right. <laughs> Everybody has to be somebody really notable, you know, and, and I I understand that adds to the story, but it's just so funny to me. Yeah, or right. and even the fact that this was the last of Chandler's lot just happened to be the most important stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I I also just looking at this alphabet again, uh, from what we've learned uh on a couple of our previous episodes, you look at that first one, Katumumi, Princess, daughter of Onidas. You you've got two proper names in there and you've got three characters. And as as John taught us, you cannot spell a name that. with one character. You, you yeah, can't. that was really interesting. So uh to have three characters and it has two people's names plus uh, some other information uh, that, you know, that doesn't work. Of course, we know it doesn't work because I'm guessing we can actually read what these characters mean in Egyptian at this point, since we since we know what Egyptian, you know, we can read Egyptian at this point. Um, I can't, but. <laughs> yeah, neither can I, but you'd have to go look in Robert Rittner's uh, stuff. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And uh, just wait till you see what else this character can mean. <laughs> okay so now we get to the alphabets um so here's a transcription of kind of what's in there um and so as an overview there's what what he was calling parts um so uh, i kind of think of it as like different sections um and then there's different um degrees within each part. So that'll become a little more clear later on. But um, there's a total of about 138 characters. That's kind of a hard number to come up with because some of them like are like grouped together 
or maybe they're like a dissection of one character. So like, do you count that as one? Um, but there's quite a few of them either way. Um, only six to nine of them were given an actual sound, an associated sound. And then even less were actually given an explanation. So it's like, it kind of like trails off. Like it's like very clear and complete in the beginning. And then it kind of just trails off. Um, I have some thoughts about that, but we'll, we'll get into that later. But then we see uh, Ketuman makes kind of something like it, makes it into the alphabet here, Katauman, um, which is the name of the royal family in the female line. So it's like, here it's more generic, but somehow in Joseph's mind, at least, there's something giving it more specificity in that other document. Um, so I think that's kind of what's going on here is trying in his thought process is, all right, we'll break things have like a base meaning, right? And so that would be like the first degree. And then you can go up or down from there. Uh, and then it's like you mix and match, right? You combine stuff and it has like all new meanings or it like ex expands. Would that be like, you know, letter A can be A, A, uh, you know, it's one's one degree versus the other. You can make the sound different by making it a different degree. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, there's no real um, explanation of anything about the sound changing. Only the explanation seems to change with the different degrees. So the meaning, <laughs> the meaning of the sound changes. With okay. Yeah, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't make sense in the end. But um, yeah, not that I'm aware of after looking through this stuff. Like It makes sense magically again. Magically. Though, that's exactly yeah, yeah. how it is. And that it's a whole new way to look at things with his point of view. That's how magic operates in that world, magic world point of view. So I can right. so clearly see this now going through the book of Abraham. It's, it's just amazing. Yeah. So another thing to point out is just kind of the, the genre of things we have going on here in the first part is kingly power, universal reign, royal family, princesses. Um, so it's kind of all centered around the, the more thinking of like the mummies and Egyptian kind of royal families, um, which, you know, these kind of themes find their way into the first part of the book of Abraham. Okay, so then where do the characters in the alphabet, where do those actually come from? So for the first two parts, it's not totally clear. Um, there's some something we can say about it, but a lot of them might just be invented stuff um, or like dissected characters of real uh, hieroglyphics. Um, but then as you get further down, so in like the second half of the second part, <laughs> they start copying the characters sequentially from these columns that are around um, this lion couch scene. And so they kind of start here and then go to, so the second part, yeah, starts with these, and then the third part does this column, then they move to this one. Then there's a couple characters right here. 
and then they f finish off with this one. So maybe maybe Joseph was thinking that this is like the alphabet is basically contained in these columns, and and that may might have been the initial thought. I'm not sure, but most most of these characters don't actually get a translation. So let's just run through these different parts real quick of where the characters come from. Uh, so this is the same alphabet we were looking at, but this is C, I think uh, by Oliver Cowdery, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so um, the, at least, you know, by Dan's analysis, this probably most of these come from the the papyrus that was the source of the characters for the valuable discovery. Um, so there's not always like, a, some of them are pretty good matches, like this one here, or like this little guy up here probably came from something like that. But then you have all this stuff that appears to maybe be them dissecting that original character and kind of breaking it down. And then as you get further down here, a lot of these uh, they're just very simple shapes, right? They're not even really, probably not really Egyptian characters, but maybe dissected ones. Um, but this one's one of my favorites here, which will be a theme later on. And you actually see that is a real uh, Egyptian character and it's drawn both ways, it seems. Um, so must've seen something in that. Do you by any chance know there, there's different forms of Egyptian? Uh, you know, we've got hieroglyphics, demotic. I can't remember what the other. Erratic, I think. Erratic, yeah. Are are these? Uh, are are do we know what character group these come from? Because clearly this was an Egyptian papyrus. So, what do we know? What I don't know. I I think they're hieratic, but I'm probably. 50 50 shot on that one. I don't know. Okay. I think demotic is like the more like cursive, uh, but these are more of like the pictorial type uh, characters. Uh, so okay. I have to go look, look in Robert Renner's book for that one. Um, so for the second part of the alphabet, we get into. Um, stuff that's related to the pure language. So there's been some, some episodes recently on various podcasts about the pure language project that Joseph Smith seemed to, seemed to have this theme of thinking that there was a pure language that started with Adam, right? And it kind of, in his worldview, that would make sense, right? Like Adam was given the pure gospel. He would be given a pure language, obviously, right? It just, I can see that worldview. So, um, this, this is something that was already percolating in Joseph Smith's mind, apparently, like there was this sample of the pure language in like 1832, where you get these definitions of like, what's the name of God? Ah, oh, man. What's the name of the son of God? Son, ah, oh, man. Right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, Coincidental. Creativity there. That's yeah. really good. <laughs> Right. And so, yeah, I think recently Dan pointed out that this is um, his hypothesis on that is that it's it's 
tongue, the speaking in tongues coming up with these, all these different sounds, right? They're kind of tapping into that piece of the human brain that lets you just kind of speak nonsense. Um, glossolalia, right? So um, anyway, the um, specimen of the, of the pure language um, was in a letter, let's see, so a letter from W.W. Phelps in May, 1835. So this is just before they get the papyrus. Um, they, he's working as a scribe for Joseph at the time, but he's sending a letter to, uh, I can't remember who it is, an acquaintance of somebody. And he's saying, oh yeah, we're working on this stuff and here's a sample of the pure language. And if you'll notice those characters in sequence are right there in the Egyptian alphabet. And I think there was this idea that the Egyptian was like pretty close to the pure language, right? Since it's so old. So maybe that's what, what he was thinking. But um, yeah, so it's mostly pure language. And then you can see these other characters are probably just like further invented characters based on the pure language. Um, and then the definitions are the same as, are very similar, right? It's like, this is the name of God, the first mover, that type of stuff, angels, uh, ministers. Um, so, yeah, not really actual Egyptian characters on this one. All right, the next ones we'll go through kind of quick, but basically they're sequentially copying these columns. I mean, this was fun to go through myself, just like see if I could figure out how to match them up based on other, you know, work that other people have done. This first section is kind of like uh, all of the, this little square is kind of all over the place. And they're also like dissecting these characters as they go. Um, and there's like some in here that are probably not Egyptian whatsoever. But this little guy with his hands raised here, um, right? And then you see, it's like, oh, that, that's one arm, that's another arm, that's a leg, you know. So some of these symbols, I think Joseph was seeing like Masonic symbols in, like that's like the sign, cry for help one. Oh, uh, interesting. Which kind of shows up, it's just like the sign of distress and that actually shows up in the alphabet of like, this is like the ancient sign of distress. <laughs> um, so I won't spend a lot of time on these, but if you actually sit down and look at them, you can see, you know, how they were copying and I'm, I'm actually thinking, like, how are they doing this with, with like, a quill? It's like, they did a pretty good job on some of them. That's the other column there. You got a bird, which is cool. Um, I will point out this character here um, is probably what people were referring to as, like, the signature of Abraham. As, like, this basically means Abraham right here. Um as we'll see later. So there's another one. A lot of these did not get did not get expounded on as we get further down here. And that's the final one. Not sure where these come from. Probably could have flaked off here, or maybe this piece wasn't always missing. But um, you can, it's usually pretty clear where they were getting the stuff from. Okay, so then into the Gale. So here, or, or so where did the contents of the Gale come from? So most of this is just 
transferred over from the alphabets. And um, what's interesting here is some stuff that show up later in the alphabets, like in part three and five, those get moved to the front of the line because maybe there was something more interesting about them. Not entirely sure. Um, but those move up into the beginning and become uh, the first part in the uh, gale. And then from there, it just becomes sequentially copying over from the alphabets. And then the other interesting thing that happens here is these get expounded. So in the alphabet, it was just the first degree, but then once they get transferred over to the gale, they get expounded upon. Um, and we'll see some of what that looks like in a, in a few slides. Okay, so then that covers part one and then part two, for whatever reason, the method, like the way changed here. So they're still sequential in order, the same as the alphabet, but then it's this kind of staggered degrees. So this character here only gets the first degree and then the next one is the second degree and then it kind of wraps around. So there's no real explanation as like why that is, <laughs> which is yeah. this common theme here, right? It's kind of like almost kind of haphazard, just going with the flow, right? You can kind of see envision like this grander project, but then it just maybe is too much work in the end and let's change how we're doing this. That's just, maybe it was just too much, right? Too much translation to get through. So let's, let's move it along kind of thing, right? How, how many letters were in the alphabet? I think it was about 69 or so that get a sound. Right. Yeah. And then uh, the final ones, it the method changes again, um, and these ones get completely filled in. Um, and the thing to note here is, I think, are these ones are to do with the ast astronomy, and a lot of the names of the different stars and planets and whatnot that are in these characters come into facsimile two, the explanations for facsimile two. So you get flow S, floss Isis, plea floss Lysis, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I think, you know, I think he's just working with what whatever piques his interest, he kind of just drills down on that, right? It's not really a comprehensive kind of operation going on um but yeah this so this is kind of important too because this is most likely what uh oliver or what these what this journal entry is referring to here on october 1st talking about this afternoon labored on the egyptian alphabet in company with oliver and ww phelps the system of astronomy was unfolded so this is really where all that comes into play. Is, so is this of, where Oxenwagen comes from and all the names of the planets? And Bliss, all those yeah. 15 names he came and up Colab. with. Yeah. Colab. Colab, okay. Wayne. Colab. There is a Wayne's World. Wayne's yeah, World. I say to our viewers, <laughs> if you have not delved into the names of the planets as described by Joseph Smith, uh, it's very interesting. Zip, 
is one. Zipzai. Yep, yep. <laughs> Shinfliss is our favorite one. And then just plain old fliss. I mean, <laughs> seriously, if you've not looked into this, you have to. Just when you thought it couldn't get any stranger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so that's pretty fun. Um, yeah, so here's, uh, this is the actual text in the grammar book describing this expansion theory of these characters. So, um, Landon, maybe you want to read the, the, the quoted italic text there. The, the italics, okay. Mm -hmm. This is called Zaki Onahiyash, or Shal Saidan Hisha. This character is in the fifth degree, independent and arbitrary. It may be preserved in the fifth degree while it stands independent and arbitrary. That is, without a straight mark inserted above or below it. By inserting a straight mark over it, thus, two, it increases its signification five degrees. By inserting two straight lines, thus, three, its signification is increased five times more. By inserting three straight lines, thus, four, its signification is again increased five times more than the last. By counting the numbers of straight lines or considering them as qualifying adjectives, we have the degrees of comparison. There are five connecting parts of speech in the above character called Zaki Oan Hish. These five connecting parts of speech for verbs, part of participles, prepositions, conjunctions, and adverbs. In translating this character, this subject must be continued until there are as many of these connecting parts of speech used as there are connections or connecting parts found in the character. It, who, who said this? Who's this quote from? So this is the text that's next to this character in the Gale. And it's in the handwriting of W.W. W. Phelps. But, um, you know, this is Joseph's operation, yeah. right? This is his explanation of what's so going on. This is a pretty good understanding for someone who couldn't write a letter. Uh, <laughs> at, <laughs> an uneducated And he's now it, participles, prepositions, conjunctions, adverbs, degrees. Yeah, of, yeah that's that's quite a leap. Uh, but again, it's it's a magical way of thinking because yeah. you have a character, you're changing something which increases power, decreases, changing meaning. It's the same kinds of things. And I know this is a very simplistic explanation, but what was written on, you know, his different magic circles and the runes is the same style of thinking. Right. Yeah. And when they're saying um, it has X number of connected parts of speech. So what they're what they're referring to is, you know, this line would be one, this other straight line would be two, this line would be three, this big dot four, and this other little dot five. So it's got five elements to it, right? And then, so that's, it's got a base power of five, basically. <laughs> and then yeah. you put a line above it, it becomes five times five. So 25 parts of speech. And so by putting a line, you control, can also, right? when you say parts of speech, are we talking sentences here? You make a sentence by drawing a line over it or what? Well, the best I gather from this description, they're talking about verbs, participles, prepositions. So it's like words, maybe individual words. So it'd be like it's five words by itself or 25 words if, you know, it goes up a degree or something. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. By drawing a line, it all of a sudden means yeah. 20, 
one line creates 25 words. Yeah, which is uh, the magical increase. Yeah, that that's we've clearly been a magical it's thinking because there's no way thinking. one line can yep. represent 25 words in, in any language. Right. And it's like already having one character per word is like pretty untenable as like a mm -hmm. yeah. system. And then, yeah, okay, let's just, let's take that to the power of two. It's like, it'd be totally unworkable as an actual yeah. system that yeah. any person could hold in their head. Yeah. So anyway, that's and that's and are the these are these of. symbols or these drawings that we're seeing are these actually on the papyri with the lines, or is this a completely separate alphabet system that he's almost creating from scratch that's not on the papyri anywhere? Yeah, there's not there's not really these lines like this. I mean, obviously some characters might have horizontal lines towards the top or bottom of them, but there's not this like multiple line thing going on or like. Yeah, like it's so not... when he goes and when he shows a character and it's a whole paragraph, it should have multiple lines all over that character to increase the count, and yet we don't see that in the translations. Yeah, and that's that's a common theme. It's like not all of this stuff is makes sense together, right? Um, when it's really analyzed, but you know, with the magic worldview, whatever. <laughs> Whatever you Anything want it can to happen. Be, yes. I know, Whatever and I picture these—I picture these grown men, you know, just standing around pondering on these papers and writing things out. It's just—it's incredible to me that this is what they were coming up with. And they all, I guess, maybe fed off each other, believed each other as they were studying it. Believed Joseph, of course, and what he was showing them. But it really would have been fascinating to be in that room and just see their thought process yeah. as they literally believed these things. This was a magical experience and they all believed it and bought into it. They're and then really trying it in their minds to really, <laughs> they're trying really hard. But then of course, I mean, we're calling it magic, but they thought it was religious. So it's right. so interesting to imagine. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I could definitely see them, you know, kind of feeding off each other. Yeah. And like Dan's dance theory of a charismatic leader is. Yes. They feed off each other, the followers yeah. and the leader, right? So if if Phelps is uh, is ex maybe expecting something, Joseph could get that idea, but then tweak it a little and say, "Oh no, it's actually like this." Yeah. So it's kind of already what he's expecting, you know. But you can imagine all kinds of scenarios. Yeah. There. yeah. Wow. Um. So that was the like degrees of meaning. And this is the character dissection, which we've kind of already covered. But here's just how it's laid out in the Gale lecture on this section is, okay, here's the base character, and then we're going to break out all these parts and then expound the meanings for each of those pieces. Um, so pretty fascinating stuff. If, if you read through it, it's kind of somewhat contrived, right? There's not a whole lot of like uniqueness between the degrees. Um, but yeah, well, one thing I'm noticing is uh, Abraham's language, they sure used a lot of words that had a Z sound in them. Yeah, yeah. Zubzul <laughs> Oan, that's one of my favorites, and then um, Zaki, uh, yeah, you're seeing a lot of Z sounds, right? And this one is, is worth noting the dot. Um, this is a common thing throughout is this means 
I or to see I, right? Or myself, I, sight. So, and there's a lot of the characters that have this dot to them. And then you'll see it's like I, Abraham, or a woman saw something underwater and the characters got that dot in it. So I think, you know, why would a dot not be an I, right? So, <laughs> That's the thing. So, so this looks like, um, as, as I look at the first degree through the fifth degree, you know, it it looks more like it's a verb tense or something. See, sight, saw. Um, yeah. But first to fifth degree, doesn't that mean it has to have a line? Or how, how do you differentiate the first degree from the fifth degree of that dot? It's not fully explained. You don't, they, they don't put lines like we just talked about that makes it a fifth degree or anything. It, it could be context, you know, just in the sentence that in, you in might the way, then understand how it would fit in the context. Kind of like we have the word that means the same thing. Uh, in, exactly. And it, you say it differently. Based, I'm trying to think of an example of that. But, uh, it, you know, we do have words that you, you read it one way uh, and it, means one thing and you say it a different way and right. the context the same tells way. you yeah, what it is right bat. maybe like the word saw a baseball bat you saw it in a sentence yeah, you would know it's a verb yeah that's a good or yeah. it's a yeah oh that's a good one that's a really good yeah. one okay. yeah yep. boy <laughs> yeah so just basically taking concepts in english and trying to fit them into this egyptian slash magic thing has anyone been able to take this grammar book and the alphabet Take the book of Abraham as written and rewrite it in this, you this alphabet. Right. D engineer. D engineer. Yeah. It says this. The is this. This is how we would write it. He's given us the whole explanation. Here's how we'd write this whole book out. And then, oh, does it match the papyrus? <laughs> well, that sounds like a project for you, Landon. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing the answer time. to that That's is no. Awesome. But if there's anyone working on their PhD in linguistics, this would be a this fascinating would be uh, this would be project. Yeah. Well, that's the yeah. irony of it. I, I don't. So Joseph was intelligent, but I don't think he, he was actually coming up with a workable system in any way here. Yeah. Right? So it quickly just turns into a real Egyptian character. And then I'm just flowing my consciousness out. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm sure someone could try. Right. Where, where does where does finding parallels not end? But um, it, yeah, probably not a very good. If you're a post-Mormon linguist, linguist, please contact us. That's right. No, do you know what this reminds me of? When I was in third grade, I started a UFO club and we discovered, discovered UFO writings. They were dots and dashes. And we all sat around like 10 of us little kids trying to interpret what they were and making things up and getting really excited about it and believing each other. You know, I mean, we thought it was real. Of course, we were very little then, but it's the same kind of thing. I mean, they're just looking at this and trying so hard and feeding off each other. I can just, I can so clearly picture how it worked. And it must've been extremely exciting. I mean, really exciting right. as far as what was happening. And, and they really thought they were engaging in scholarship. Yeah, well, I think you can't forget, too, that they have the key. They have a prophet, a seer, yes. revelator, and translator, yes. right? That is his prophetic gift. So they're, they wouldn't be like, you know, oh, I, I'm just going to try, but maybe it's not right. It's like, no, this yeah. 
Joseph has the ability. This is awesome. Let's let's get into it, right? So yeah, if he says zip, there's a planet zip, and if he he says there's a planet shinfless, there is. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. Okay, so then just another. We don't have to spend a lot of time on this one, but this these characters find their way into the very beginning of the actual book of Abraham, where you can see Abraham. That looks familiar. That's, Abraham, that's right? the character that uh, John showed us, the Captain Hook. It is. Uh, the Captain <laughs> Hook yep. character. Yep. That's yep. right. There it is. Yep. And then um, we'll see in a minute this character, that little guy with the staff, it kind of evolves into this. But you can kind of see a man with a staff. So that it's oh. like the character evolves a little bit. But this is how they end up drawing it uh, in the end. Um, and so this is talking about you know, coming down from the beginning, birthright, father of many nations, prince of peace. Okay, so we're starting to get the beginnings are percolating of the book of Abraham here and these characters. Um, I, I see the dots. Aren't those supposed to be eyes or saw? Exactly, right? So then you look in here and you don't exactly you don't see, see it. Yeah, right. But in other cases, it's very clear, like, oh, okay, there's a dot in there because it's talking about C or someone's talking in the first person kind of thing. But yeah, it's just, it's all over the place, really. And I think at this point, we are going to end this episode because uh, how far into this are we landing? Seven hours? <laughs> yeah, about an hour and a half, I think. <laughs> but we got a long like way to go. <laughs> it feels like that there's so much information, but it's so good. Oh my goodness. I hope that everybody's really enjoying this. So we're going to end this episode right here. And we are going to pick up with part two with Elder Igloo, our good friend, Andrew Snowbridge. And we're going to be airing that soon where we finish uh, the rest of his deep dive into the book of Abraham. So please comment. Let us know what you guys think. I know, like we said before, everybody knows there's something about the book of Abraham, but they don't exactly know what it is. And I think this is going long way to help explain that don't you Landon yeah it really throws a wrench in this whole uh book of Abraham that he just uh maybe received it by revelation uh it's clear he's trying to translate with some yep. of the things that we've been shown so uh yep. absolutely it's been fascinating Yep, it sure has. So please comment and let us know what you think of this interesting deep dive. And as always, like and subscribe to Mormonish. And if you'd like to be made aware of when new episodes of Mormonish podcasts come out, you can hit that notification bell and it will let you know. Um, also, if you'd like to financially donate and help support the infrastructure of Mormonish podcasts, we have links in the show notes always to Venmo and to PayPal. We certainly do appreciate everybody who does uh, support us and we just love our viewers and listeners. So stay tuned. Very soon, we're going to be putting out part two of our deep dive into the book of Abraham. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.